Hi everyone, here we are. Welcome to episode two of OK So, finest podcast on the internet with an ellipsis in its title. I am going to think of a better title than that, I promise, because that one works for me and about four other English nerds. Either way, thanks for listening today. You may have noticed that we had some music on the way into this episode. That's a song called Leap Year, and it's by The Roof Goats, a Boston-based alternative rock band from the mid-90s. And if you're an enthusiast of the Boston alt-rock scene from the mid-90s, you're probably rocking out hard just then and thinking to yourself, this guy Jeff really knows good music. Well, you're right to rock out, but completely wrong about me. Because today's guest is Mike Lawler, once known as the Roof Goats guitarist, now known as SVP of Client Services at Freewheel. Mike's a total stand-up guy. He's awesome to talk to, and he was generous enough to sit down with me to chat a bit about where he grew up, why he's an operations nerd, what he does for Freewheel today, and the moment that he realized that music was better as a hobby than a full-time gig. So sit back, pop that popcorn, and enjoy. Uh, all right, so let's get to it. Um, sitting across from me is Mike Lawler. Mike is SVP of Client Services for Freewheel. Full disclosure, I also work at Freewheel. Um, and we've known each other for about three years now, coming on three years. Um, and he's just going to take a little time and talk to us. So let's get started. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? It's going great. Happy to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming to like wide open, full of Windows conference room one to record <laughs> this. Smell was kind of bad. <laughs> well, that's probably mostly my fault. So um, let's get started. I think cool. you know how we, we structure this. Let's start with the where question. So let's start with where are you from? I am from Augusta, Maine. I grew up there. I actually was born in Louisiana, but I've spent most of my uh, formative years in the great state of Maine. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, <laughs> Maine is a great place to visit. Uh, <laughs> Said from someone who grew up there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful state. Uh, okay. Like, yeah. Spent a lot of time outdoors. A lot of lobster. A lot of lobster. Um, so when you were growing up in Maine, talk to me a little bit about what you, so what was formative about growing up in Maine? What exactly, like, what'd you do there? Uh, spent a lot of time staring at the walls, wondering why I was so bored. No, I think, so Maine lends itself for obviously outdoor enthusiasm. So I play every possible sport I did. I did, uh, you know, pretty much the entire Appalachian Trail, Climbed every one of the major mountains. I spent one summer where I did 100 nights out, or one year where I did 100 nights out. Um, we did, uh, I was in Boy Scouts, so, you know, one of the trips was we cross-country skied with a, our overnight pack on, made an igloo, which is basically piling up a bunch of snow, pouring water on it, skied for, like, the day, came back, and dug it out at, <laughs> it sounds terrible now that I say it, but dug it out <laughs> in, uh, you know, at Lantern Light and slept in this thing overnight. So, it was it was pretty cool. I had to do a real like I was an avid whitewater kayaker. I was an avid skier. I was an avid yeah. So I got to do a whole bunch of really cool stuff that people have to sort of go on vacation to do. And I could just do that in an hour or two hours. You know, avid mountain biker, all that kind of stuff. And so I guess the first thing you did then after that was where you live now, which is you picked up and moved to New York. Yeah, right. So which is the antithesis, right? Because basically I've like. I've, Hit my lifetime limit of being in a tent, so I decided to move into the nice. urban jungle. Checked all those boxes. So actually, let's set. step back and talk about a little bit about how you got to New York. Sure. Um, so you lived in Dubai. Yeah, so I lived in Boston for after undergrad. I um, went to grad school in New Hampshire, came to New York for about 10 months, had an opportunity to move to Dubai for um, an indefinite period of time. For me, that was two years. And then moved back to New York. And I, I said that when I moved to New York the first time, I didn't really give it a fair shake. 
I was a Boston guy. This was a really big city. It, it just I didn't, you know, I would travel for work on the weekend uh, during the week, and I'd fly back to Boston the weekend. I didn't really give it a shot. Um, and uh, I think to some degree, I was probably intimidated by it. And when I moved to Dubai and spent a couple of years there, and I came back to New York, I'm like, this just makes a whole lot of sense. This is pretty easy to navigate compared to uh, some of the experiences I had over there. So now you live in New York, no, and you know you've sort of I would say that you developed into kind of a true New Yorker now that you live here. I mean, as as painful as that may yeah. seem to New to a New Englander. Um, Still a Sox fan, which let's just be clear for your listeners. That's fine. I always say that Red Sox fans are just like Yankee fans, except we have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you sad but true. So you, <laughs> there's a reason why I had a chance to watch 162 games for a couple seasons in a row. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That, I guess that's what locked you in. So you know, but so you developed, I think, you know, one of those true New York characteristics. It's one of those things. So you you know, super, super, well, I don't want to frame it that way. You enjoy going out to eat. You enjoy restaurants. You enjoy food culture. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about what is interesting about that. I mean, it's an art form in and of itself, right? right. I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that it's it's almost the same as going to a museum and looking at a Picasso or something like that. Yeah. The way that somebody crafts their foodie stuff is the way that someone would craft a painting, for instance. Yeah, I think about it a little bit differently. So I I grew up in, like I said, in Maine and in a very, like, meat and potato family. And even my experience in Boston, like, I, I, I don't, won't embarrass you to tell you how little exposure I had to ethnic food. Ethnic food meaning anything other than Irish-Italian food that my family cooked. Well, take the opportunity to tell the story about Serena. Uh, <laughs> in Maine, asking about Indian food. <laughs> yeah, so we were on vacation for our honeymoon, or honeymoon for our anniversary, and we have a tradition. She's Indian. We have a tradition where one, the first night we have Indian food, and the second night we have, uh, you know, a tr- non-Indian food, Western, I guess, meal. And uh, we were in Booth Bay Harbor, which is a small fishing town off the coast of Maine. And I was trying to explain to her that Indian food was not going to be an opportunity on this particular trip, and she didn't believe me and asked the bartender slash owner one of these bars to which she replied, honey, you're the darkest skinned person I'm going to, I'm going to meet all summer long. So I, mean, I, <laughs> I picture that scene in my head and I just laugh. Yeah. Um, I mean, you say it very, you know, good naturedly. Yeah, of course. Um, so, so look, I think about it different. So I didn't have a lot of exposure. So part of this is me just being like, oh my God, I never had any idea the breadth of tastes and different types of food that was out there when I moved to New York. The fact that I'm married to an Indian person who, um, you know, is her she's very uh, attached to her culture so I obviously eat a lot of Indian food which is amazing um, I think about the food I'm not your typical foodie who's like oh the presentation all the stuff although that's part of it I really like thinking about because I'm an operations nerd how they put all the stuff together like this it's something really amazing about these restaurants that get it right when it's everything from the ambiance to how the plates look to really the consistency and the stuff that's happening both in front of the kitchen and in the back of the house. And the fact that one of the most important things at a restaurant is, again, consistency. Like, you want to come back to the same place because you have this amazing bowl of whatever, and you want that same thing again. And if that's not the same both times, there's a real problem. And when you really scale it up to a Per Se, or even a Balthazar, some of these really big restaurants, to really think about how you serve a 50, 100, 200 plate, or 200 table dinner is a really cool operations problem to solve and because again because I'm an ops nerd to me that's just interesting that's funny I always think about that so I don't actually think about that when I sit down in a restaurant but when I sit down 
or like, like go to the you know the bodega up the street to get a salad. I'm always like wildly impressed by how they can pump out 80 salads in 45 seconds. Right. Or like um, the guy behind the grill at that place who takes seven orders at once and doesn't screw any of them up. Right. Um, so well, that's in part an operational thing, but also in part like just a, a ridiculous feat of memory. Like, right. Right. And alternatively. The curse of this, and I was a consultant who did both ops and strategy, is when you go to a place that's not well run like that, it drives me through the roof. Like, Serena, will, my wife has banned me from certain places in the neighborhood because <laughs> I go in there and I just start wanting to give advice or yell at people because, like, it just could be so much more efficient than it is. That's so funny. So that's actually a good segue into sort of where you work, which is is here at Freewheel. Yeah. Um, and that is your job here, pulling together just an operational efficiency that allows us to do what we do with some level of, of competence and assurance to our, our customer base. Right. Um, and that's like everything else, right? Sometimes it's, it's really, really an astounding success, and sometimes it's really sort of doesn't work the way that we, right. we would like it to work. So talk a little bit about what was appealing in terms of coming here from from Univision, which is what we worked before here. Yeah, so I was a client. Um, I was a client of many, many vendors, as we are typically in the in, in this in ad tech space. I didn't really have a ton of interest in going back into consulting or necessarily going into ad tech, although I always said if there was one vendor that I would come to work for, it would be Freewheel, and that was because I was impressed at both the caliber of people, the level of passion they had, and, and the, the intellect and, and leadership position that we have in the industry. Um, and, and I'll be honest, the story that I always tell is uh, my SRM, who's the team that you run, came over to me. He was, he was my only consultative sort of vendor, right? And he came to me one day, and he invited me out to dinner and basically told me, he's like, Mike, you're, you're, your operations are a shit show. Like, you need to... <laughs> and he brought me here one day over to the office, or the old office, and James Rook and Brian Dutt, two of the guys who ran the advisory practice that I now run, we're in there and we were talking. At one point, I was like, "Wait, are you guys consultants?" And they're like, "Yeah, we're ex-consultants." And I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Because now I had somebody <laughs> who could speak my language and really think through. And we, you know, we drew out the operations end to end. And here's the pain points. And here's how the other clients are doing it. And it's how to benchmark it. So, long to take a long story to make it short. When I, it's so pain, and you know this too, because you used to do something at a much larger scale than what I was doing ad operations and yield management and revenue operations at the premium programmers is so complex and so painful that I really enjoy the fact that I get to wake up every day trying to help these me and yous of the world on the other side have a better life and just be able to be more efficient and spend more of their time thinking about what matters, which is how do I increase my business? How do I delight my users? How do I make more money as opposed to how do I stitch together 75 pieces of technology? And when I, when something breaks, it takes me three days to figure out where the breakage is. And so that's sort of why I came here. And I think we do, we do a pretty good job of that now. I think we've done a pretty good job of that in the world that this organization was founded in. Yeah. Right? So whether it was what digital was formerly, just desktop or now mobile, I think we've stitched all these endpoints together and now the next frontier is television, right? And we have to figure out a way to scale this business in television. So step one in that is these OTT devices um, that we constantly talk about, whether it's you know sort of the, the attached devices like the Roku's or the gaming consoles or the smart TVs or whatever it is, um, how we do that. So we had the privilege to go up to Canada 
um, early last week. Always a privilege. Which is all, it's a great, great privilege. We had freewheel day in Canada. Um, and you actually sat up and you, and you talked a little bit about OTT. So as a next frontier, can you talk a little bit about what's exciting about OTT? Like what, why is that something that we're turning our attention to now? Totally. I mean, I think what we, okay. Visual storytelling, despite all of the hype about, you know, the death of television that we read, visual storytelling is something that is a major passion of human beings, right? Whether it's movies or television or... Cave drawings. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, exactly. We've been representing the world in whatever medium we had access to. The type of content that, the premium content that's out there, the stuff that I love to watch and that most of us love to watch, whether that's on HBO or Netflix or on ABC, is made to be watched on a large, high-definition piece of equipment. Right, and so for a period of time, people were watching it because the only way they could do it was on their laptop or on their phone. We now, our clients and technology has caught up to a point where we're able to go back and watch that content or, or proliferate that content on that same television screen just through a different pipe. And so a lot of what we're seeing is people who may have not been as traditional consumers of television, at least to the extent that the average five-hour viewer of TV daily, which is still an astonishing statistic to me. They may not be that person, maybe the two or three hours or no hours because they don't have a cable subscription, but they're still watching that exact same content on that same exact screen just through a different pipe. So what we're seeing is a return to the living room away from growth on desktop or mobile. And people are saying, hey, I want to watch, whether it's Game of Thrones or whether it's Empire, I want to watch that on my 16th TV screen at home, and that's where the OTT opportunity really exists. And really, I guess the final piece on that is, it's all about user experience, right? People are gonna go to where the user experience is the best, or is, is you know, the most favorable. The t- television screen is a part of that. The curated application and certain uh, discoverability, all those things that the premium environment is thinking about are the reasons why people are coming back to the television set, because that's where the, the best experience exists. And this is something that I talked about, um, you know, last week when I, I did this with my my friend Nick, who works at Target. That 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 notion of democratization of content, but then take it a step down, right? Who's curating that content for you, and how you're getting these types of recommendations? I mean, that's a real opportunity um, for people to steer people into content they may not have heard of or may not have understood. Totally. Um, so when I get a recommendation, whether it's from Netflix or when I'm on the ABC app or when I'm, I'm trying to figure out my cable or whatever it is, you know, you watch this, you may like this. Those types of engines are really what's driving content consumption now. Totally. I think that's a, a huge opportunity for a lot of the people in the space where, uh, and I think you and I talked about this before, where if I go to... Um, I don't want to call it any particular client, but if I go to a client who's got a bunch of different comedy shows and those are all listed as the shows as opposed to here's comedy clips. Like you're into this type of content. Here is a bunch of that content. It could be from 10 different shows as opposed to you either have to choose show A or B or C or D. And I think discoverability is super important for that reason as well as the fact that there is so much content out there right now that there really needs to be a way to more easily say I'm into this type of content. Show me what's available across linear television, app, other 
And then the opportunity is that you actually get to lean back and watch it when you're on a huge TV right, right. that you don't have exactly. to worry about right. flipping from piece to piece. Yeah, you don't do all this, all this work it takes to be able to go from this thing to this thing to this thing to this thing in order to watch the different six different things that you want to watch. And the growth numbers on OTT are insane. Yeah. Right? They're abs- they're I mean they're mind boggling. I think the thing that I quote when I'm sitting in front of customers who ask me about it is if you looked at this statistic in, in the first quarter of twenty fourteen, it was one percent of all of the volume that was running through our, our system. It was in the 40s in yeah, the last yeah. report we put out, right? Yeah, I think it was high 30s, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you can see the cannibalization effect. It's, it's almost directly from desktop to OTT, right? Because people five years ago were plugging their, their laptop into their computer in order to, uh, sorry, the laptop into their television in order to watch this content. And now they're able to do it through just an app and a device. And, and but interestingly, it augments the actual television audience, right? That's which right. I think is what's so fascinating about it. Yeah, totally. One of the things that we found in that study, which we thought was really interesting, was you know you've seen a twenty-four-ish percent decline in primetime GRPs, primetime viewership, as measured by you know C one or C C three, if C one's over live plus three days out, and the press that you read if, will kind of like point you in a direction that. Well, as people are leaving, not, they're not watching the content that is traditionally available on television. They're all going to Netflix, or all going to YouTube, they're all going in. And actually, what we found is, that's not the case at all. Most of that decline in primetime rating was being re-aggregated just to different devices. So again, I maybe not be watching the Empire through my cable sub, but I'm just watching it on that same television through my Xbox or my Roku TV, as opposed to saying... I'm not watching that show at all anymore. I'm watching something on Netflix because the content is more com- compelling, which brings us back to the earlier point, which is it's all about the premium nature of the content. People are going to watch the content if it's good, wherever that it is, and there's plenty of room for different transaction models, ad-supported, non-ad-supported, you know, subscription-based. And so what premium content are you watching now? Like when you sit back and you go home, I mean, I, like we talk about this all the time. You're yeah. constantly like, have you seen dot, 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 and I'm always like, no, because I'm completely overwhelmed by choice and I can't make an active decision about this. So I watch the Big Bang Theory again the <laughs> nine thousandth time. Yeah. But you're really good at watching a lot, right? Uh, yes, but I do fall back on watching Veep repeatedly over time. I've seen every one of those episodes a thousand times because it just makes me happier about my life. Um, <laughs> what am I watching? So I think the Game of Thrones is the obvious one that that we're all watching. Um, I. You know, recently watched um, Pretty Pretty Little Lies on mm-hmm. the show. Yeah, it's tremendous, tremendous show. We're watching one on USA now uh, with Jessica Biel. So I'm good at watching these shows. I'm not good at the names. Well, that's always um, true, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure, Bill. Um, which is really good. And I'll be honest with you, a guilty pleasure of mine. So I, I is um, Million Dollar Listing New York. Um, it's it's another industry that I'm really interested in. And was, my dad is a real estate agent, and um, it's cool because it, I don't know if you've watched it at all, but it it's a reality show that isn't based around drama. It was a little bit at the beginning, but now it's really just based about the success of these guys, and they're now so successful. They're selling the biggest buildings in in the city. Um, it's cool in a lot of ways. It's frustrating because I've just gone through the process of trying to buy a condo, and my expectation was that like. They were going to like pick up the phone and give the offer. The other guy was like at a coffee shop and he's going to say yes, no. And we were like in 20 minutes going to solve it. And then we would put the offer in days would go by. We wouldn't hear anything. Yeah. So we can talk about our, um, our, on our real estate podcast. We can yeah. talk about all that for the hour because you and I, you and I have both gone through that pain over the last, right. um, over the last years. Yeah. So I want to actually completely shift gears because there is, there's something extremely interesting about you, um, that we haven't at all touched on, um, as part of, 
um, as part of your youth growing up in Augusta, which is that, you know, you were in a, like, a, actually a, a fairly successful sort of regional rock band. So how did you get into, how did you get into music? How did you get into playing guitar to yeah, start with? It's a great question. So, well, it's a great, it's a great question for me because I like to talk about myself. <laughs> Probably not for anybody else. So I played piano when I was growing up, and I always remember, I remember playing it, practicing it, and I was decent. I come from a long family line of, of musicians, um, but like looking up, you know, it's summertime and my back is to my buddies who are all in the front yard playing baseball and I just gave it up. So my mom, who's a hippie, had an old cat gut, like like big ass guitar from the 60s. And I kept saying, I want to like loose strings, yeah, untuned. Like, yeah. yeah, like cat gut, you know, guitar strings. And she's like, look, if you're going to play, I'm not going to buy another instrument because I don't believe you're going to stick with it. Play it. And I picked it up and I spent this summer not going outdoors with my friends playing ball and actually just sitting there until my fingers were literally bleeding learning how to play guitar. I found this passion that actually started with, with I know the two moments where I really was like attuned to music. One was listening to the cymbal on um, Stairway to Heaven and the other one was listening to Eruption by Van Halen um, and those two things was like, I peaked that interest anyway, so I picked up this crappy acoustic guitar and then yeah. joined up. I read a stat, 67% of the people who picked up the guitar in the 80s did it because of the guitar solo and eruption. <laughs> yeah, that's so cliche. hashtag made up facts. Yeah. So um, so that's great. So then, you know, it's, you, you stuck with it all the way through, and I'm assuming you were in sort of garage bands over yeah. the course of your, your time in, in high school. So how did you actually get, we'll start with what was the name of your band and then let's start talking through like how you kind of God. developed the... Okay, so my band in high school, the cover band I was in high school was called Moby Toad. So we saw it on the back of a boat. Nice. Um, was the name. <laughs> and we were effectively like a Pearl Jam. We basically played Pearl Jam 10 and then like one other song from somebody else. <laughs> and like we all jumped at the same time during the break through info. It was very embarrassing. So um, and then I went to college and I was playing, actually I, I turned out to be my best friend one day was like, he walked into a room like three weeks into freshman year and he had drumsticks in his hand. We started talking. We, so we formed a cover band called Liquid Courage. <laughs> Ridiculous. And eventually... <laughs> These stories are when you really find out about people. Yeah, exactly. And there was this kid who lived upstairs from me freshman year who had a really good voice and he was like a trained singer and I kept trying to get him to, to play and he was just too embarrassed to do it. And then junior year, a bunch of these guys got together and they were really bad. I mean, really bad. And they were looking for somebody who had a little bit more experience. And so I came in and we put this together and that band was called The Roof Goats uh, because in class that day we had learned about um, the history of the scapegoat, which is that they used to throw a goat over a <laughs> over a cliff to like get rid of all their village problems. Like that was like you know uh, it hasn't rained in six months, so I blame it on the goat and shoot it over the cliff, and everything will be fine. Hey, yeah, sure. Maybe and then the try, skies opened up. Maybe yeah. we should try it here. Yeah, exactly. It started, it started raining. So repeatable success. Uh, and then we were playing on the roof that that summer. So we played this. We uh, we released an album. Uh, released an album. We did a tape. We we actually crowdsourced it. This is back in the like, late 90s. We crowdsourced an album through a bunch of our friends, put a, a CD out senior year, and then we had a little bit of interest from um, Arista, actually, who showed up at like our worst show ever. We never heard from them again. Um, and then we played the club scene in New England for about three or four years after that under a different band called Negative Ghost Rider. Um, and to put the coda on the story, I was dragging my amplifier, my 50 pound amplifier through the snow at two in the morning on a Wednesday, 
and I had a Thursday morning meeting at like eight o'clock, and we played in front of like you know thirty five people, and I was like, okay, I'm done. Like you, you really were at the inflection point where it was, I'm going to be the star musician who's going to ride around and beat up Van Union McDonald's three hours and three three times a, a day, or I was going to become a professional, and we all kind of looked each other in the eye and said, this is cool, let's do this as a hobby, and we'll go. So that was your moment of clarity. That was that dragging was, you know, the amp through the snow. I remember that like it was yesterday. But the Boston club scene, actually, I mean, I remember um, this is sort of years after their popularity. But Buffalo Tom yeah. was like a very, um, a very like a band that I was super into for yeah. a little while. I mean, they were never super popular, but they had a, you know a couple of MTV hits, and they were yeah. on uh, My So Called Life. They performed, you know, for many years. Yeah. And so I went up to visit my sister. My sister went to um, BC. For her masters, and so I went up to Boston to visit her, and I saw Buffalo Tom play Big Red Letter Day at TT the Bear in Cambridge, um, which is like, and so they were they, some you know some garage band from the area opened for them, but the Boston club scene, um, you know, and I do kind of I do kind of haze Boston quite a bit because you know I grew up here, um, but their club scene and their music scene, sort of through the '90s and into the into the aughts, I guess, was was really robust. Like they, a lot of really yeah. interesting, good bands came out of there, like the Lemonheads. Dinosaur Junior and bands like that. Yep, um, Presidents of USA. You can say what you want about those guys, mm-hmm. but um, they were there. You know, there's a Cleo, Mighty Mighty Boston's, um, Tanya Donnelly. Yep. throwing music. We actually Juliana opened, Hatfield. Yep, we actually opened for Lemonheads once. Um, we played at TTs. We played at Great Scott. Well, actually, what's interesting about it is so there's this bar called Great Scott in um, Brighton and reasonably down the street from BC, and they had never played or allowed an original band to play ever and we convinced them like look our fan out to BC as well as our fans are going to come and they're going to they're going to fill up your drawers so don't worry about it charge five bucks at the door they're going to drink the place out of beer and <laughs> we were the first original band ever to play at that place and that play that Grace Scott's over time has now turned into a place that's not only one of the premier spots to see original music it's this is the craziest thing that tells you how old I am it's now like hosting these bands that were my were my influences when I was growing up. So the the space rock bands and uh, Helmet played there recently. Like this place that we played at as a lark and like bust our way into. It. I'm not saying it's linearly related, but oh, I think it amazing. is. Yeah. That's completely because <laughs> of the roof goats. But like it's amazing to go back there and be sitting on the other side of the stage and watching Hum, who was one of the biggest influences on us when we were playing there 20 years before. It's bizarre. And there you go. That's your legacy. That's the closing chapter in your autobiography. That's, that's, yeah, that's about as far as I'm going to get in life. All right, man. This was, <laughs> let's, let's end on that. This was great. Um, so thanks for taking the time. I know yeah. it's, it's nuts around here these days, but thanks I really appreciate taking the time. And uh, Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. All right, and that's our show for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Mike Lawler, again, not just for sitting down to talk to me, but also for providing the soundtrack for this episode. Um, So with that, uh, if you like what you heard, please feel free to check us out on Twitter at PodcastOKSO. That's PodcastOKSO on Twitter. Uh, And I think I'm going to let the roof goats play us out from here. So take it, guys. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. Tell me